Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Hello, you dirty fucking shitbags. This is Nigel Hawthorne, late of uh, The Madness of King George, which is a movie I was in, you fucknuts. Oh, I hate you all. I hate you all so much, but you watched my movie and you liked it. Who do you think you are, you fucking shitbags? I have no truck with you and I have no belief in you or your families. They call me Farmer Nigel because I appreciate how things work for farmers and none of you fuckheads out there are farmers. You cut snacks. Ah! Ugh. He's gone. He what just, the fuck? I don't know. I mean, the man's been dead for 15 years. I suppose that is enough to make you angry, but Jesus. He didn't even introduce the show. He didn't even introduce the show. He didn't say anything about us. I mean, <laughs> say our names. We're, I'm Jason, and that's Brendan, and this yeah. is for Screen and Country, and that was Nigel Hawthorne, and he is just knocking shit over, heading out the door. I don't know what his problem is. Oh, we were nice enough to invite him. Oh, God. Grave. What the hell? Look at that. But Nigel, Nigel, you can't. Rah! Fuck you and fuck your families. Why are you back? Go away. <laughs> Nigel, get out of here, Nigel Hawthorne. Ah, you lily-livered, finger-spanking, blagging fucks. Okay, uh, Jeffrey, can you... Thank, thank you. Thank you. Did Jesus. you get a butler? A, a security guard. Oh. He's also a butler. Wait, was he the guy on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? You got him as your security guard? I mean, he's got nothing to do. Oh, well, that's awesome. I'm glad you're putting people to work. Oh, boy. Well, that is a, an eventful start to this show. Yeah, as it wasn't what we, we expected. Uh, as we introduced ourselves, we, we said the name of the show, we introduced ourselves... What is this show all about, though, Jason? This show is about British film and about the top 100 of said British film of all time, according to the British Film Institute, as listed in the year of our Lord, 1999. Yeah. Before, after that, but after 1999, that's when it ended, right? As we have established previously, British film was halted in 1999 so that this list could continue to be accurate for many years to come. Because of the armistice? Yes, it was part of the armistice with Germany in World War One. Um, that was actually a long-term contra, like a long-term, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 what's the word? Fuck. In a contract. No, it's a... Uh, <laughs> Why did I say reparations? It's not a reparation. It's a long-term, uh, duh. anyways. It took a lot of years, but it finally happened. Okay. The, the World War One treaty with Germany said that British... The, the Germany took full responsibility for the war, mind. Yeah. But the British had to stop making films as of 1999. <laughs> that was the deal. That was the deal. And Germany paid back its money that it owed, so British the British had to stop making movies. And right. here we are. That makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, after that complete nonsense, yep. uh, we are going to talk about a special... Uh, you know, a very special movie this week. But first, we need to talk about... Last week's film, The Madness of King George. The Madness of George III, if you're in England.
Yes. If you were in the land where our movies come from, you would say that's the title of the movie. Jason? That is what I would say. That is what you would say with your mouth. That's what I said. The Madness of King George III. Or just George III. George III. The yeah. Madness of George III, comma, King of England, comma, Protector of the Realm, comma, Defender of the Church, comma, Man About Town. No, that's the uh, that's the Japanese title. It's the Japanese title. It's most of the poster. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a bunch of symbols. All right, let's talk about this. We got comments from some folks. Yes. Uh, about the madness of King George. First up here from Andrew Littlefield. He says, It's a fascinating piece of history with a relevant question. How do you handle a monarch that is certifiably insane? And it was a bigger question back then because monarchs wielded considerably more power. I mean, if if, if Her Majesty Elizabeth uh, uh, II, long may she reign, uh, went nuts right now, I mean, it's not like she could actually really do much because she has a lot of people that surround her. And also, I mean... It's just not done anymore. Does Kings she, and queens, it is just not done. I was going to say, does she really have that much power? Although it would be interesting to see, I would love to see a crazy queen just try to dissolve our parliament, just to be like, yes, I'm dissolving the Canadian parliament immediately, and just to see what would happen. We've been on a real roll after the Brexit thing. <laughs> Tyler McBee says that we read George III and the Mad Business in an MA course and were assigned a paper on any topic surrounding the issue course met the requirements for English slash history, so I wrote a comparison of George III of history and the character in Bennett's play, so the original play that this movie was yeah. based on. Uh, he's a fascinating man, and the film is among the best biopics ever produced. There are certainly liberties taken, of course, but as a film, it's outstanding. Yeah. I didn't think there were too many liberties, though. Like, it was fair, as far as one of those movies are concerned. As, as far as the history I managed to glean from Wikipedia, it seemed pretty consistent for the most part. I assume, you know, obviously some dialogue and whatnot would have to be invented because it's not like we have transcripts of this stuff. But the, well, the main. Don't. I do. I mean, I mean, you I'm obviously gonna... have access to better sources than most people, but but I yeah, no, it, it it felt it felt good. It felt like it, yeah, like I say, based on the history that I read, it followed the beats pretty pretty closely mm-hmm. of that situation. Keep going. Uh, who's next? Yeah, well, who's next? Uh, that would be uh, Christina Lore. Lore. Mm-hmm. Christina Lore. Say it like Don Pardo. Christina Lore. Very good. That's not a good Don Pardo at all. Nigel Hawthorne, Ian Holm, and Helen Mirren all give excellent performances. The scenes that explicitly show the king's deteriorating mental state are heartbreaking. Yeah, they are. Those are the toughest scenes. See, seeing movie. a man who's like clearly such like the strong-willed guy just, you know, just, yeah, degenerate in front of your eyes because it gets worse as it goes on. Uh, yeah, it is hard. It's hard to watch because we all, we've seen people like that in our own lives, no doubt. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. Like the scenes show uh, that show him having uh, his breakdown are so realistic that I'm thinking like he either is a terrific actor, which obviously he is. Yeah. But also, he he might have even had like experienced that with someone else in his life mm. and drawn from that because it's so like it's so close to something I've seen before. Yeah, and it, 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 it's real. It's real because it's like there's there's such so many sad moments, but there's also there's funny moments because people that are going through that sort of breakdown dementia they can be you know very funny. And you don't want to say that because you know they're going through a real hard time, but sometimes they say things that are very very funny. And, yeah, and he does that as well. Exactly. <laughs> or certain weird non sequiturs or something that just make your brain laugh. What about our next commenter, Sean William Scott? I mean, Holt. 
We do that Sean joke Williams every time he posts. Uh, and he loves it. He loves every it. I'm sure time. I'm sure he loves that joke. I'm sure he's not heard it since he was uh, 13. I get it. I get so many letters from him that say, mm. keep doing that joke. It's amazing. All right, here we go. What does he say? He says, I'm sure most have forgotten it by now. I was able to catch it on Hulu recently and as a sucker for frilly period pieces. Ooh, that's a, I like that. Uh, was happy it had more substance than your average lacy frock. Oh, yeah, this guy's a writer. Nigel Hawthorne and Helen Mirren are so good. I think all British royalty must have been mad, or so the movies would, uh, about them would make us think. Well, yeah, no, you're right, Sean. I think uh, I, I think when you're in that position where you have a combination of like ridiculous wealth, ridiculous power, and, and a real strong streak of inbreeding, you get a certain madness that just kind of permeates a family. And every now and then, one that comes out is a is a top of the top of the game, top of the pops figure, but... Not not as much. Top of the pops. I <laughs> I just thought of like a radio station for some reason. No, that's a that's a British TV show, Brendan. See, for our British uh, listeners uh, that are laughing at us trying to understand British culture, I was making a British <laughs> reference. Oh my god! And if there are any British listeners out there and you enjoy uh, sitting there smugly smirking at all the things we say, let us know because I just want to know that I'm happy I'm making your day. And in the spirit by of- giving you pleasure in the most British way possible by having you smugly look down on somebody else. And in the, in the spirit of British comedy. There are several of these jokes that will only begin to make sense about 10 minutes after we tell them. That's right. <laughs> uh, I guess going back to uh, Tyler McBee, because he made another comment here. Uh, Many of the royal houses of Europe had incidents of members rising to emperor, king, czar, grand duke, elector, palate, pal- palatinate, etc. Palatinate, pal- yeah. palatinate. Who appear to have been mentally ill. It's difficult to know the truth of some as they ruled far too long ago for us to separate legend from reality. In the case of King George III, who died in 1811, we have more conclusive evidence. Charles VI of France believed his bones were made of glass and had iron rods sewn to his clothes to prevent them from shattering. Fyodor I of Russia allowed his brother-in-law to make all decisions of state so he could wander his kingdom ringing the church bell of any town he entered. And Joanna of Castile had the tomb of her dead husband Philip opened every day so she could caress the body. This went on for three years. This is the problem when you have a hereditary system of government is that you don't have to actually have any qualifications. And again, that... (laughs) <laughs> that that tendency in in uh, in a lot of royal families to maybe marry in uh, and marry a little closer than they should, uh, you end up with some some real real pieces of work. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like so many leaders in history are people that like great leaders would also have been considered just absolutely bonkers nuts. But the things they did happen to actually be beneficial or or in some way. You know, like I, I think somebody I love Winston Churchill. He was a super smart guy, but he was fucking nuts in some ways. Absolutely. And I mean, he's, he has some less than desirable qualities. Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. But also the right man at the right time for the right job. Yes. The Kevin Spacey of his time. <laughs> I don't know if I want to tar him with that brush. <laughs> Alright. So our last comment comes from Brian Kuyper, or Keeper. I hope, I hope it, I think it's Kuyper. But uh, what did Brian Kuyper say? Brian says, it's been a while, but I remember really liking it. I'm not usually big on costume dramas, but this is something much more than that. Funny, poignant, well-directed, acted, written, just a damn good movie. I saw Nigel Hawthorne in Yes, Minister, and after seeing this, and wondered why this guy wasn't a worldwide superstar. He deserved the kind of acclaim to other Brits of his generation. He's that good. And he is. He's he's fucking great. I've not seen Yes, Minister, but he's fucking great. Yeah, and and before we watched Madness of King George, I legitimately had no idea who he was. Yeah. And, And I think a lot of people in 1994... Uh, felt the same way that they they saw this guy in Oscar season. It was just like, who is this guy? But then you get some people that are like, Demolition Man's Nigel Hawthorne. 
What, he was in Demolition Man? We talked about that. Okay, well, it's been a while. It was only a week, Jason. It was only a week. It was ago. last week, remember? So, Jason, this is the last thing we do here before we move on to this week's movie. We will compare this movie on the list to the movie that's on the American Film Institute 2007 list mm-hmm. uh, at the same number. Same number on the list. So, The Madness of King George is 42 on the BFI Top 100, of the course. The Instant Life, Dutiverse, and everything. Isn't that 43? No, 42. Oh, okay. 43 is the number of stock car driver Richard Petty, the legend Richard Petty. The king, they call him. Well, speaking of Richard Petty, the movie on the AFI Top 100 at number 42 That's is... actually Kyle Petty. <laughs> You're such an Elliot Kalen right now. <laughs> is uh, Number 42 on the AFI is Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, with, uh, with uh, Warren Beatty. <laughs> yes, Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty. I haven't seen it. I, I like how you uh, said it as if it was the full title. Yep. Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty. Yeah, no, I've not seen it. Uh, have you seen it, Brendan? I have seen it, Brendan. Oh, did, you, did you like it? I did like it, Brendan. I <laughs> like, uh, yeah, Bonnie and Clyde is a great movie. Um, Who plays Bonnie? Faye Dunaway. Okay. So And Gene Hackman's in it, too. Okay. So You're the film guy. Don't look at me like that. I'm, no, I'm telling you. Don't look at me like Take that. Take my facts and, and shove them in your bum. Uh, I would say, wow, comparing these two movies... Well, to avoid it, uh, keeping my reputation as somebody who get, just <laughs> likes the newer movies more on this list, I'm just going to give it to Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, but it's close. Like, yeah, I don't know. Both very different movies. Yes. Well, uh, Bonnie and Clyde's very good. Madison King George is very good. Uh, yeah. So watch them both. It's a toss up. Do a double header some night. Can we say toss up? Toss up. It's a toss up. And Jason is giving it to uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. One of the greatest uh, movies about uh, uh, women who are knocked out for long periods of time in history. Wait, second best, Million Dollar Baby. I gotta give it to Snow White. Uh, hot take. All right, that is, that is a terrible thing. <laughs> so that is uh, that's good to do for this. So let's get to this week's movie, Jason. Let's talk about this sporting life. That's right, folks. Number 52 on the BFI Top 100 list, This Sporting Life, directed by Lindsay Anderson and starring the great Richard Harris and Rachel Roberts and Rachel Roberts and Doctor Who. (laughs) What? Doctor Who. Doctor Who. The first Doctor Who is in this movie. He plays Johnson. Oh, I thought thought you meant Rachel Roberts. No. I was like, (laughs) wait a second. I just heard a big deal about there being a female Doctor Who. She definitely wasn't the first one. She was not. She was not, unfortunately. No, no. The the fellow (laughs) that plays Johnson in the movie. Dad? Which we'll get to. Yeah, Dad. Yeah. Who confused me for most of the movie because I thought it was his dad. No, he was just calling him Dad because he's an old man. That's what they do in England. Yeah. So, yes, so we were talking about, again, number 52, The Sporting Life. Jason, tell us about what this movie is well, right about. Well, right out of the gate, this is a movie about uh, a coal miner living in Yorkshire. Now, you, if you've listened to our podcast... Yorkshire? Yeah, you'll know that we, uh, we watched the movie Kess, which had a very thick accent and was very true to time. 
Um, this movie is also set in Yorkshire, but the accent is much more readable because most of them don't even try. There's a few words here and there that kind of come across as very Yorkshirean, but uh, yeah, Richard Harris is Irish, so he sounds like an Irish guy. Uh, by the way, did you notice that Richard Harris looks like the beat-up child of uh, Marlon Brando and Richard Burton? The Brando thing, yes, because the, as soon as I saw that underbite. Yeah, and when he's wearing that hat, yeah. I was like, this is a Brando role. Very Brando, And yeah. then I found out that he was in uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, one version of it, yeah. which Brando also starred in, huh. another version of it. So I was like, oh, the, the similarities don't end there. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely a, a more, like, rough, beat-up British version of Marlon Brando by way of Richard Burton. Yes. Um, so, uh, Richard Harris, our man. Uh, Dumbledore the best, I must say. The best Dumbledore, oh, Richard Harris. Oh, hot take. Absolutely. I love Michael Gambon. Far too theatrical for Dumbledore. Also, also, uh, Bob, Bob the English, English Bob. English Bob. English Bob from, from Unforgiven. Yes. That's, that's looking nothing like that in this looking, movie. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> um, so Richard Harris. So this movie, uh, Richard Harris plays a fellow named Frank. Frank, based, his last name is almost Machine, I just yeah. realized. Yeah, Machen. Machen? Yeah, but it's spelled like machine without the E, which yeah. is funny because like you could argue he kind of is like a machine. Uh, well, if they if they recapitalize that, it could be McKinn. He could be a Scotsman, but he's not. Darn. Yeah. So Richard Harris plays Frank, who's a coal miner in Yorkshire. Like so many British movies, he's a coal miner in Yorkshire. Um, he rooms with Mrs. Hammond, Rachel Roberts, yes. who is a widow whose husband died working uh, in a uh, for an engineering firm. Right. We'll get to that. Uh, and her two children. And so they all live together. Ian um, and, and Lydia. They have names? I yeah. didn't even notice. So, I watched it twice. Good for you. Uh, I can handle once. So at the start of the film... Frank is in the middle of a rugby match, and during this rugby match, he is in a, what they call a scrum, I believe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, rugby fans. I know you're out there. He's in the middle of a scrum, and uh, then he gets out of the scrum, and a guy full-on just full-on punches him in the fucking face. It looks like he takes a fucking clothesline from hell. Oh, yeah. No, he takes a full-on <laughs> Stan Hansen lariat to the fucking teeth, and in doing so, loses about six of them. And so they haul Frank's ass off to the dentist because they need to get his teeth fixed. But Frank's clearly got a concussion, and he is going in and out of waking consciousness. And so for about the first half or so of this movie, this movie is framed, like many movies, where it's kind of in a flashback structure, and Frank is, like, passing in and out of consciousness as he's dealing with his teeth. Uh, and once they get him to the dentist, they dope him up, and so he's in and out again. And this is something, yeah, this is something we've come back to. Because yeah. we did, we had like four or five in a row, yeah. I feel like. And now we're just like getting back into that same uh, narrative Directors again. love a good framing device to uh, have flashbacks, right? Yes. Uh, so, so we start to see about who Frank is in his life. And Frank is kind of a nobody. Like I say, he was a uh, coal miner, like so many people in Yorkshire at the time. And he's out with his mates one night, and they are waiting in line, or online, as the British say. They were waiting online to get in a, uh, uh, a nightclub, and the bouncer won't let them in. But as they're, as they're uh, standing there, drunkenly uh, chomping at the bit to get into this club, a bus shows up, and the bus says City Rugby on the side. And all these dudes in, in fancy sports coats get out, and they're the rugby team. And guess what? They just let them all in, because yep. they're fucking badass, because they're the rugby team. They're local heroes, Brendan. So they let them in. Uh, uh, and Frank sneaks his way in, and when I say sneak, I mean he just drunkenly barrels his way through as they let these guys in. And once he gets in there, he goes and finds the captain of the rugby team and basically challenges him to a fight. Well, yeah, uh, he wants to, like, step in 
with his dance. Yeah. Because it's like, to, they, what do they say? There's he like cuts in. He like literally taps him on the shoulder like he's going to cut in the, on the girl. They say there's a general excuse me, which means like you can just, if you say excuse me, you could just interrupt a dance. Yeah. No, you've never seen that before, Brendan? <laughs> you've never seen that trope of like, may I cut in? Like... Well, yeah, but I mean, they say the the announcer is like, "Well, we're operating on a general excuse me rule tonight." No, I can't <laughs> say I've ever seen that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe you should uh, expand yourself. I please. haven't spent enough time in in Yorkshire. You got to go to more dances, is what I'm thinking. Uh, you so know, maybe, maybe if you invite me to one of them, we'll see. Well, we will talk about this later. Well, just saying, Jason. I mean, not to make it awkward. So he uh, he steps up to the guy. He's like, hey, well, you want to dance? And he's like, let's take it outside. They go outside. Frank Fallon just fucking punches this guy. And he punches a few others of the guys. And then he just runs away. Like a child. As one would. As one would. But then he comes back. Because he sees the old guy. William Hartnell. A.K.A. the first doctor. Uh, who has taken time out of his time traveling exploits. To hang out and coach this rugby team. I hope so. Uh, so he goes up to him and he's like, hey, is there any way I could get a tryout on your rugby team? And before uh, uh, d- uh, Dad, as he starts to call him, can answer, he like, oh, no, I shouldn't have. And he runs away like a schoolboy. Yeah. Uh, but eventually he, he does come back and he does get the try. Oh, trial. Try is a different thing. Try is what they call a touchdown in uh, rugby. Okay, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, because it's... halfway through the movie when he's already on the rugby team, yeah. when they said, he had a good try today, I was like, what? He's already on the team. Yeah, what no, the that fuck was, are you that talking was him, about? Yeah, dropping the ball like a touchdown. British people confuse me. Wrong uh, podcast choice for me. So the coach, Johnson, a.k.a. Dad, gives him his tryout. Uh, Frank's not the most coordinated guy in the world, but goddamn if he's not aggressive and brutal. And that's what they want. In a rugby player, somebody who's willing to fucking just bust heads to get that ball up the field, right? And what does he do, uh, Jason, to impress the scouts at this game? Oh, he full-on punches another member of his own team inside the scrum and busts his nose... Because this guy won't uh, won't work with him, won't like pass him the ball. Yeah, and, and so he and, fucking knocks him out of the out and of contention. Frames someone else. Frames someone, another team guy, and the other team, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and that way, he's able to get in and show what he's able to do, because uh, that other guy's not in his way and keeping the ball away from him. Yeah. So I mean, hey, gotta give him credit. That's a guy who takes what he wants. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, oh God. <laughs> He's a man who takes what he wants. We want what we take him. We take what we want him. So this is this is enough to sufficiently impress the owners of the team. And now the owners of the team are there's a guy named Weaver and there's a guy named Slomo. 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 Not Slomo. Oh God, Mister Mister Richard Harris, we want you. We want you on our team, but we're not paying a thousand pounds for you. No, my knees. So yeah, so the so Slomer and Weaver, they kind of are a little bit of rivalry in between them, but they want Frank, and they're willing to offer him a deal, but Frank insists that he wants a thousand pounds down. Right there, right now. He's very insistent. He's in very fact, insistent. He, and he has no he has no reason, Brendan. He has no reason to think that he should have any uh, credit within negotiating, because who the fuck is he? Do you He's get just some guy. That, do you get the sense that he doesn't really care about the rugby? He just no, wants money? He doesn't give a shit. I mean I mean he, he knows he's he knows he's pretty good at it <laughs> and he knows he can do it, but he also is clearly not willing to like give an inch. He has a desire and that's he wants a thousand pounds down to play, and if they aren't gonna give it to him, then he's gonna walk. And that works because they give him the money. They give him the money. They hand him a check with a thousand pounds on it and they send him on his way. And now he's officially employed as a rugby player. A player of rugby, as they say. 
Now, while he's there too, uh, Mr. Weaver, who runs the Weaver engineering firm, who uh, Frank's landlady, Mrs. Hammond, her husband worked for him. Yes. And Frank mentions it. Um, and Weaver points out that uh, they believe Mr. Hammond uh, committed suicide. Uh, and this is a question whether that actually happened or not, because the question is whether it was ruled a suicide simply to uh, avoid paying out to Mrs. Hammond mm-hmm. or whether he actually did commit suicide. And we, I would we also, never know. I would also argue because we obviously will get into the character of Mrs. Hammond because yeah. she's a major part of this major movie. Major part of this movie. Um, but she is basically distressed for yeah. about 95% of this movie. And the fact that it was reported as a suicide, I think, makes you understand it even more. Because not only is she grieving, but she's grieving thinking that she did something wrong. Yeah, exactly. That she was somehow responsible for her husband's death, her beloved husband's death. But, so, like any good widow, after their husband is gone, they have to take out a rent, you know, they bring in a renter to rent the room, and Frank is the one that that is renting her room. Um, Now, the thing about Frank is that outside of rugby, he's far less impressive than he is in rugby. He's a shithead. Mm-hmm. He drinks too much. He thinks far too much of himself. Uh, he only wants to impress Mrs. Hammond for some reason. He wants to impress her. He wants to impress her with the thousand pound check. He wants to impress her with the car he purchases. Well, and let's play. Let's listen to that right now. Um, this is a clip of uh, of uh, him telling her about this check, yep. about this bonus he's made, and he she, she doesn't react the way he wants her to. Yep. Matt Johnson called earlier on. That friend of yours. I've just seen him. I mean, he's been waiting all this time. It was hours ago. He likes to get out and about a bit. Should have friends your own age. I have. They've signed me on. Didn't you hear what I said? Yes. He'll be pleased. So will you, and you guess how much it is. I don't know anything about it. Go on, never guess. Just guess how much you think I'm worth. Threepence? Oh, careful, careful. You made a joke. You can't go on cracking jokes like that. You know, you might do yourself an injury. Oh, come on, never guess. Come on. No. Well, I better tell you since you're so keen. £1,000. Yeah, and I I, th- I think, like, we're definitely going to get, it, like, into this uh, thing that repeats itself throughout the film, but yeah. he's constantly wanting to be, I can't think of the word for it, not credited, but, like, he constantly wants to feel... He, he, wants, he wants her to be in awe of whatever shit he's up to. He basically wants her to be impressed, to be like, oh, that's real nice. He wants... And she refuses to give it to him. He wants anybody yeah. to to think of him as, like, good. Yeah. Because he even asks a random stranger later, am I a good footballer? Yeah. All she wants to do is fuck, fuck him in that in that party. Like, he, he's always trying to... I think he has very low self-esteem. Yeah. I think just Clearly. like she does. Yeah. But he shows it in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas she is very subdued and, like, you know, d- uh, emotional... But he shows it, and he tries to overcompensate. Yeah, well, and this is 60s England, so you have a way that men are supposed to be, and you have a way that women are supposed to be, and they can't really, you know... Men don't cry. Men don't cry, that's right. So, he he tries so much to impress this lady, and she just is not having it. And uh, he gets drunk one night, and comes home, and calls her sunshine, and is real uncomfortable. 
Yeah. And so she sends him to bed. The next day, he's hanging out in his room, and she comes up to turn the bed over. Because I guess she's that good a landlady that not only is she willing to, like, rent him a room, she's willing to come up and fucking change his bed. Uh, or, or make his bed up, which is pretty sweet. That's a pretty good service that you normally have to pay extra for. But, uh... It's at this point that Frank decides it's time to take their relationship to the next level. And his way of doing that is to force her onto the bed and rape her. Yeah, so this is a thing where he is constantly trying to get some sort of reaction out of her. Uh In one way or another. Now, I am not... I am not. I'm not saying, advocating no. the rape as a way to get a reaction. No, I am not. I am not advocating any of his actions in any way in this movie because they're <laughs> terribly misguided. Yeah. But the thing is, in this scene, it's like his desperation. He is just done. He yeah. doesn't know what else to do. He figures the only thing I can do is just force myself on her, and that way I will finally get the reaction I want. And you know what? Yeah. That doesn't even fucking work yeah. because he comes downstairs immediately after that, and. Asks her, like, uh, what are you going to say anything? And she's like, well, there's nothing to say. Yeah. And he gets angry, throws something, and leaves. Yeah. By the way, I, I, I just want to quote... Uh, I, I was doing some re- uh, research for this movie, and I found a summary of this movie on Turner Classic Movies on TCM.com. And I want to descri- I want to read you how they describe this scene. Okay. Eventually, however, she succumbs to his sexual magnetism and permits him to seduce her. Oh. But she remains emotionally isolated. Yeah, no, not quite. No, that's not no, quite. No, no, no. He rapes her. He rapes her, and then she gets into a relationship with him because that's what you did back in the sixties. Yeah, that that is that is. <laughs> what was that written? Nineteen sixty-five. I don't know. That was just what was on TCM. Oh boy, TCM. Yeah, Do come some on, guys. Proofreading there. Yeah. Uh, his uh, his magnetism. No, no. He yeah. straight up assaults her. Yeah, he straight up assaults her, and then and he has the balls to say. And he does the Ray Fiennes hook. He does the Ray Fiennes fish hook, which is the second instance in, in this list, I think. I think it's the third. Third? Where was the other one? I don't was remember, but Clockwork I remember... Orange? What? <laughs> Clockwork Orange would probably be a No, but candidate. I remember saying, oh my god, they did the Ray Fiennes hook uh, at some point. Oh, maybe. was it maybe Four Weddings and a Funeral? No, I don't remember. Maybe yeah. not. Yeah. I, I thought I saw... It. No, it's in Darling. Right, Darling, yeah. right. So we got a fish hook in three movies. <laughs> Try this with your significant other. Clearly, the British back in the '60s love this shit. Let's see how many times the fish hook comes up. Yeah, we're we're gonna keep track of fish hooks, so we're at three. So this is terrible. Keep going. So the thing about Frank, and he tells his friends this, is that women don't frighten him. No. Clearly, uh, but then this he he kind of uh, uh, has this put to the test when uh, Mrs. Weaver. The wife of his uh, boss. The board housewife. Yeah, the board housewife invites him over to her house for a bit of a drinky poo. And he goes for some reason. Because, well, he's not smart. He's not smart. And I suppose he also probably feels like, well, she is the boss's wife. I can't really say no to her. Yeah. I don't want to get in shit with the boss. And he shows up. And what happens? She tries to seduce him. But Frank is very uncomfortable about this. Clearly because he has an interest in Mrs. Hammond. Uh, but, enough but, that he raped her. Um, Jesus. But uh, it turns out that in the 60s, it's okay for a dude to force himself on a lady, but a lady can't do the same on a guy. Frank gets really uncomfortable with the situation and just fucking bails. I think he's also worried about Weaver finding out. Oh, yeah. No, Mr. absolutely. Weaver. I think that's his main concern. He's worried about that, but also I think he's clearly uncomfortable in this situation. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah, think he sure. really wants to fuck this one. Well, and I think because, like, it's, it's kind of funny that the tables are turned. Yeah. And, and I think the movie is well aware of that yeah, situation. Absolutely. In that he is aggressive. He can be sexually aggressive, but when the tables are turned on him, yeah. he is very much like Mrs. Hammond. He oh, absolutely. Is, he is terrified. Yeah, very terrified. Uh, or at least you can see, kind of see it in his eyes in that scene. 
Oh, it's great acting. Richard Harris is great in this movie. He doesn't play a likable person at all. No, not at all. But and, he is very good in the. In the oh, he's so very good. good performance. He's great. Um, so for some reason, I don't know why, but but Frank has been deluded into thinking that that he that his life is in Mrs. Hammond, that he's going to love Mrs. Hammond, and she's going to give him the love that he desires. Again, after the rape, um, but I mean. Time and time again, she is so not interested in him. Even though she kind of gets into a relationship with him, she clearly doesn't really... Because she is grieving. She's still grieving for her husband. And he doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand He that. doesn't understand how she can... Uh, how she can grieve... How could she could still be grieving, even though he's telling her, like, just be happy. Yeah. Like, he, he's not an in, he's not intellectual enough to figure that out. Yeah, to realize that there's more to being happy than just saying, be happy, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and we can see throughout the movie that she obviously has an attachment to her husband. For a while there, she has his boots by the fireplace. Yes. And and that's kind of a constant reminder. And then when she gets into the relationship with Frank later in the movie, you'll see at one point that the boots have been placed in a cupboard. And that should be an indication to Frank that she is slowly starting to starting get better. To come around, yeah. But the way he <laughs> reacts to it, I feel like he, th- he thinks, oh, it, nothing's changed. He's too dumb. He, th- he sees himself in a competition with this guy. But the fact is, is that he doesn't understand that no matter what happens, he's always going to be a part of her life. Yeah. He's always going to be a part of her, regardless make, of whether he's dead or not. Make no mistake about it, uh, guys. This is a, like a tragedy. Very this much is, so. This film is like, I'm not going to say Shakespeare, obviously, because not the same kind not of quite. language, but it's the same kind of uh, like narrative. Yeah. So he wants, he wants this woman to love her, but he also kind of treats her like shit to the point where at least two separate times he full on just hauls off and slaps her. Like, like full on, just like all his power, open handed slap across the face. And do you think like that's his? The, do you think number one, it's his anger, obviously. It's his but anger. number two, do you think it's also also a way for him in his weird thinking to get an emotional reaction out of her? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's probably that, but it's it's probably partly that, and partly because that's the only way he knows how to deal with women. And, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the only way he deals, knows how to deal with anything. anything he's a rugby yeah, player. Hit them. Yeah, he's exactly. just a, well. Actually, yeah. Okay, go go ahead. I was gonna um, play a clip, but I'll wait a second. But so along with the slapping and everything, but he he wants he wants this love, and he does all the things that a man does when that man thinks that they should then be rewarded with sex and love. But he he does not get that that is not how it works. You can't just give a woman a fur coat and expect her to fuck you. That doesn't work in the real world. That's not how it is. You, you, just because you give someone a gift doesn't mean they're obligated to fuck you. Um, but he thinks that. And he continues with this shitty behavior. Because he does give her a fur coat. Like every great uh, sports wife, she gets a fur coat. This By the way, this whole movie is basically like a, a template for shitty athletes. Like, you could look at so many shitty athletes over the course of history, and they probably would fit into this Frank uh, uh, Machen, Machen? Machen. Frank Machen template. Uh, he takes her to a fancy restaurant oh. and gives yeah. her a fur coat. They go out, and then he just ends up being a total shit. He just is really shitty to the staff. Now, folks, I work retail. <laughs> I've dealt with people like Frank before. He is just super shitty to the wait staff. And if anybody, and trust me, now listen to me. In your life, if somebody is shitty to the wait staff, you need to cut them the fuck out of your life because they are a horrible person at heart and they should be executed out back and dropped in a ditch. That's a fact. 
That's quite the PSA. That's a fact, Brennan. Um, I won't hear anything else. No, he's horrible. He's, he's the worst. He's, yeah. he's yelling out at people, putting he's, his feet up on the chair, and he's like, "Yeah, he's like, oh, hello, love. What are you eating over there? Like, you know, just like annoying the rest of the customers. And of course, they're all upper crust. So this, you know, in a different movie, Brendan, this would be the scene where it's it's the comedic scene where the lower class guy goes and just fucks with everybody I, and makes them all super pro-clutchingly uncomfortable. Yes, but, and I thought about that too yeah, during but, it. I was like, but this, this is how it would probably actually happen in real life. This is like Animal House, but reality. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, imagine if Animal House wasn't funny. This is what we <laughs> Animal get. Animal House was a drama. Yeah, if Animal House was a drama with no jokes. Those poor jocks. <laughs> Those poor guys. Oh, poor, poor flounder. We all want the... Sl- we all want the... Uh, <laughs> We all want the snobs to defeat the slobs. That's right. Uh, so she bails out of there. She's just like, Frank, you're just, you're being awful. I'm leaving. And, uh, and he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. But he follows her out. They get home. They have a fucking drag out fight. Yeah. Yelling and screaming at each other. Uh, I think I have this. Hold on. Let's hear a little bit of this, shall we, Brennan? You can open a shop soon with all the stuff I've bought you. You've given us nothing you haven't had to. You don't seem to understand the reason I've done these things for you. Of course I do. You do it because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel big. You know how you like to feel big. You don't appreciate one bloody thing I've done for you. I've given you a life. A life better than any other woman in this street, but you will not admit it. Admit it? You must be mad. I can't lift my head up in the street without somebody pointing at me and saying I'm your slut. Who says that? Who says that? Just listen to him. They all laugh at you. They all point you out. Don't you know that? Trying to be different. And they point me out too, Andy and Ann Linda. We're not proper people now because of you. Because you show up every Saturday in front of thousands of them. Because you're, you're just a great ape on a football field. Because you want me to be like them. You want me to crawl about just like the rest. We'll just have a look at the rest. Take a right good look at them. Take a right good look at the bloody people around here. There isn't a bleeding man amongst them. You're flat in your back and the world crawls above you. Because they haven't got the guts. Do you understand that? They haven't got the guts to stand up and to walk about like me! Shout as much as you like, but just get out of here. I don't want you in my house anymore. You know you need me. Why don't you admit it? Leave me alone! I won't leave you alone, not until you admit it! Now, was it in that scene, too, that she he also throws the, the husband's suicide back in her face? No, that's a lot earlier. In that's the a lot earlier? That's, that's when he says, like, I'm going to go to bed... I might die by the morning or something. It's right. Like, oh man. Yeah, re- real harsh, real harsh. Um, and then that's that's. Um, I don't know if that's the first time we hear it, but it's the most prominent time we hear him or heard refer to him as a great ape yeah. on a football field. Exactly. Uh, and after this drag out fight, uh, uh, Mrs. Hammond has finally had enough. She she to the point where her head is hurting. She's holding her head in her hands and she kicks Frank out because he's being a shit, and uh, she's just finally had it with him. And so he, he leaves, he packs his shit up, he manages to get a bed at a flop house, uh, like a homeless shelter, essentially, and uh, hangs out there for a bit, but is not too happy about his roommates, and then goes back to the house looking for her a few days later. Is there an offline here about dad, John, the dad from earlier, like, passing away? I don't remember. Because they said something about, he's like, his dad's still here, and it's like, no, he went off or he went yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, I remember I that. He said he like he went off or moved on or something. Yeah, I, don't I know thought when they said implying he was dead. Yeah, but. yeah, I thought that was interesting. But uh so yeah, he was he so he goes back to uh he goes back to the house looking for her and he gets there and the neighbor comes out. The neighbor who I I assume he must have hired as a maid at some point or was she just hanging out with them? I think she was I think she was different than the maid. 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe, no, I'm pretty sure it's the same. They didn't woman. have a maid. I don't think. They, I don't know if they had. Well, a maid see, they, had they had that woman had like in the a, house. She maybe she was just visiting because she like was a, a babysitter. Because yeah. he had money, right? He yeah, has true. money. I mean, Here's he the thing. Here's the thing. Unlike almost all kitchen sink dramas, yeah. he is successful. Yeah. at making money. Oh yeah, he is a well-to-do guy. Money's not an issue for him in this. No, movie. but he gets there. He gets to her house, and the neighbor comes out and tells him that she had fallen ill, and that she was at the hospital. It didn't look great, and she was taking care of the kids. So Frank rushes over to the hospital. And he finds her, and she's in a coma. And this happens. This this is very interesting, okay? This is Frank finding Mrs. Hammond on her deathbed. Yeah. Because, I mean, let's just say it right now. She's on her deathbed. She's on her deathbed. Uh, she's had a hemorrhage, I believe. Yes, that's what the doctor says. And this is what he says as he's looking at her. I think it's very interesting. Barbara, it's nothing. It's nothing at all. It's nothing, Margaret. You're all right. You're, you're all right. You're going to be all right, Margaret. You're going to be all right now. You're safe. You're safe, Margaret. Margaret. You can't go like this. You can't leave me. You mustn't be mean, Margaret. Margaret, you can't leave me. desperate he's desperate and it's oh it's so weird like it starts off he's very he's obviously very like oh my god don't go don't go but then towards the end he's like you mustn't leave me don't be mean yeah like you, don't uh, ruin my life by dying yeah that's yeah. the thing it's all even on her fucking deathbed yeah. it's all about him also gotta point out thought the doctor's bedside manner was a bit flippant he comes in and she's dead and he's like, sorry, old boy. <laughs> hey, 1960s <laughs> yeah. England, am I right? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. So, yeah, Frank, uh, it's funny because when, he, when he's saying this, he's looking at the wall and there's a spider on the wall. Yeah. And then the spider falls off the wall. He's, I think he's about to squash it, yeah. right? Well, no, he's looking at it and the spider falls off the wall and then he looks over at her and the blood's running down her mouth. And then they bring in the doctor and everything, and then they say, oh, she's dead. Do you think that's a thing? I'm not saying literally, because yeah. obviously this movie is not about magic and shit. Yeah. But do you think it's a thing where it's like her soul is like in yeah, the spider? It, it, it's kind of emphasizing the moment of death, as it were. The moment that spider falls off the wall, she dies. Yeah, and, and it's like she dies right as he's saying, don't leave yeah. me. And then she's like, no, and I'm and it, Exactly. You. It's like she's the one that's like, you know what? I'm fucking done. Yeah. I'm out. I'm done with you, Frank. And, uh, yeah. And then, so Frank gets up and then before he leaves, he sees that spider on the wall again and he walks over and he just full on punches that spider and squishes it good. And he leaves, he, he goes, he, he walks out and he comes out through the waiting room and there's the neighbor with the two kids and he just kind of looks at them and doesn't say a fucking word to them and just walks out. Walks right out. He's done with them. He's done with them. She's dead. He has nothing more to do with them. He walks out, he goes back to the house where nobody is right now. He breaks into the house, he goes up to his room, the room that he had been renting, and sees his mattress gone. And he goes back, I think he goes back downstairs and screams her name, because he's... 
Yeah, it's a very like Stella. Yeah, moment. very Stella kind Which, of moment. Which again, Marlon fucking Brando. Marlon Brando, yeah. <laughs> but after that, what does he do? He he goes back to playing rugby. What else does he have? Putting his life on the line. He's and just, we see him just finish out the movie just playing rugby. He's just another great ape on a football field. Just just throwing a ball around and pucking, punching guys in the face. That's all he's good for. All in all, you're just uh, another ape on no the balls. F- all right. That's a different song. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's this this sporting life. Not an uplifting film. No, not at all. Don't want to show this to Grandma to get her to go to bed. Nor do you want to play this at parties. No, no, it's... Dude, let's get fucked up and watch this sporting life. And then we'll watch Schindler's List and then we'll watch Cass. <laughs> bonus episode or bonus movie, Clockwork Orange. <laughs> uh, drunk and watch Clockwork Orange. That'd be fun. I don't know if I'd get drunk and watch Clockwork totally. Orange. Totally. <laughs> We'd be all laughing when that girl. No, I'm like, no, we're not even. That's not. That's, <laughs> let's not go down we're that terrible road. people when we're drunk. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, let's get into this, Jason. This movie is based on a book. It is based on a book. It's based on a book written by David Story. Much like Cass, it is based on a book. I don't think David Story wrote that book, but... No. But uh, David Story wrote the book in 1916. I believe he also wrote the screenplay. Yeah, he and he himself, as I understand, was a former uh, uh, rugby player. Yes. So it felt... Apparently the book was rather accurate and felt very real because of his uh, uh, actual, you know, involvement in the sport. Right. That be, that is, is based on a book. I don't have a lot to say about the book. Apparently, it's pretty close. Interesting thing, interesting fact I want to point out, just yes. before I forget about it. Rugby, in England, there's two different types of rugby. There's mm-hmm. rugby union and there's rugby league. Rugby union is the more complicated uh, game and is generally played by the upper classes, although there are parts of England where everybody plays it, but it's generally associated with the upper class. Chances are Frank is playing what's called rugby league. Rugby league is a simpler game that's easier for spectators to understand and is generally associated with working class people, especially in like Yorkshire and places like that. So I, I just wanted to point that out because I find that interesting that this sport, rugby, has two specifically different sets of rules in a schism that goes back to 1895, Brendan. They're like the fucking Catholic and Protestant churches. You said schism. Schism. <laughs> it's like jism, but churchy. Churchy jizz. Yeah. That's my new That's my new uh, band. New punk band? Yeah, churchy yeah. jizz. Church jizz. <laughs> um, so my, uh, well, my thing is like, I, and I think, you mentioned the rugby thing, yeah. and I think the reason they don't, like, I mean, he gets hurt playing rugby, but they don't delve into a lot into the, like, the dangerous aspects of rugby yeah. much other than that, mm. and I think that's because they had a lot of participation yeah. from the Wakefield Rugby League, which they actually thank at the beginning of the yeah. movie uh, for, you know, their participation. So oh, yeah. I think they had to be careful with how much they did there. True, and also in the 60s was not an era when you would see a movie about the negative effects of a sport. Like, you're not gonna you're not gonna see, like, that, Will, what was that Will Smith movie? Oh, about? Concussion. Concussion, yeah. You're no, gonna... no more so than you'd see people getting hurt. Yeah, exactly. And you would see, like, long-lasting effects. Yeah, no, because especially, like, in the beginning of the movie, when Frank gets that punch and he goes to the dentist it's clear he's suffering from a concussion because he's going in and out of consciousness and he should not be sleeping and or drinking for or drink yeah Jesus. absolutely not drinking you think oh man how much that must hurt drinking that with on on his like raw empty teeth beds from where the teeth have been pulled out yeah oh like, god damn he's not a well man he's not sterling archer <laughs> sure <laughs> Uh, so the director, Lindsay Anderson, let's talk a little bit about him. I don't know anything about him, Brendan. Fill me in. Well, he grew up in southern India. Oh. 
And he started his life as a prominent film critic, huh. writing for uh, Sequins magazine. He went to the dark side. In other words, he left he left journalism to go to the business. <laughs> yeah, much like uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so he wrote for Sequins magazine, founded in 1947. Mm-hmm. It, it was founded by him and a couple other people. Uh, before he actually started writing for Sight and Sound, which is, of course, uh, related to the BFI. Yeah. Uh, in particular, though, Anderson was bothered by critics vowing not to bring personal politics into their reviews and saying that they would remain completely objective. He no. thought that was ridiculous. Oh, it is ridiculous. There were there were a lot of I guess there were a lot of people at the time that were like, "Oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna have a bias." And he's like, "It is impossible to have a not have a bias." It's funny. It's funny. Uh, video game critic Dan Stapleton's been talking about that idea lately a lot about the idea of a, a review by its very nature is personal. Like you, yeah. you, you ha- you're getting your personal opinion across no matter and, what. And if you didn't, then what do you have? You, you you have a guy that sits down and writes an article where he says, okay, so the color timing of this movie is proper, the frame rate is stable, the film stock is a good quality, and it runs 90 minutes, and it runs perfectly all the way through. It's, like what That's what you have. It sounds like your review of like The English Patient. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it is technically a movie. <laughs> the end. It fits the criteria of a film that could be considered for an award by the British Film Institute. Written by Jason McLeod. That's right. <laughs> So Lindsay Anderson and Carl Rice, who's actually the producer of this film, mm-hmm. uh, they introduced a kind of philosophy of cinema, uh, which became the free cinema movement in the nineteen in the late nineteen fifties. Hmm. This was the belief that the British cinema must break away from its class bound attitudes, and that non metropolitan British, uh, non metropolitan Britain ought to be shown on the nation screens. Yeah, agreed. Uh, he had already begun to make films himself starting in 1948 with a documentary called Meet the Pioneers, which is a documentary about a conveyor belt factory. Oh! So there you go. I'd like to see that. Uh, this movie, this movie, This Sporting Life, is actually the movie which signaled the end of the British New Wave. Because, I mean, the year before this, yeah. Dr. No had come out, which was, you know, it was, a, it was a hit. Yeah. But nothing like the year after this when Goldfinger came out, which was a massive hit. Oh, the year after this. So would have From Russia With Love come out the same year uh, the, as this? The same year. But okay. again, From Russia With Love was a hit, but nothing yeah. on the level of Goldfinger. Of Goldfinger, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So while like the methods and the styles of the British, uh, British New Wave, st- it was still influential on future movies, uh, this movie actually bombed at the box office. Yeah. And it's a tough sell to spend two hours in a theater watching this movie. <laughs> well, and it's because, like, you know... Uh, it, it had been the end of a run. Like, it had been the end of this kind of movie, uh, and audiences were ready to move on to something else. And this is this caused a lot of producers to uh, be unwilling to kind of invest their money in future kind of kitchen sink dramas. Yeah. So this introduced more of, like, an escapism... It was in the way that the American movie industry has really leaned into blockbusters since the release of Star Wars, the, over like more cerebral kind of seventies films that you would think of from that area, your French Connections and such things, right? Yeah, your Clutes, yes, <laughs> uh, Mash, your Mashes, your Mashes, your Apocalypse Nows. Uh, so again, this film was not a commercial success. Uh, it's over two hours long. That was a big thing that kind of a lot of people thought hurt them. Uh, whereas two other movies, two other similar-ish movies, which we actually will come up on at some point on this list, uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and A Taste of Honey, they deal with difficult issues and paint a gritty picture of England, but they also do have a kind of, uh, glimmer of hope 
and some belief that you know like the spirit will triumph yeah, this, this movie does not have that. none of that this movie has no this, hope this movie it. i think i honestly will i will put my foot down right now do it and i will say this movie is the most bleak one we've done so far i will I, say it's bleaker than kess yeah absolutely i would say i would say you're up there because yeah because kess it's like yeah, the bird dies at the end, but the kid is still a kid, and he still has his whole life ahead of him. There's still the the potential for something to change, but Frank is Frank. I mean, Kess, you don't get any sense of hope that he's go- it's going to get any better for him. No. But By the this fact that one like, is just like... He's like 14 years old. He's still got his whole life ahead of him. This one, there are no there are no yeah. peaks. It's all, it's all fucking... Va- it's, it's all, all downhill. Yeah. Nobody's happy. Uh, so Lindsay Anderson said at the time of the movie's release, the movie shouldn't be looked at as a kind of North Country working class story. Um, he said there are obviously class frustrations in the movie, like he because this was post post war, yeah. So there was not a lot. Of, the jobs were terrible. Obviously, mm. you said that he was a coal miner. Well, co- I mean, coal mining was booming, uh, you know, in through the the forties, fifties, and uh, in that era. But by the sixties, it started to kind of. I think it was on the downslope, and uh, as we said in the Kess episode. Coal miners in Yorkshire were among the lowest paid in the country, and probably had like the lowest safety standards of anybody as well. Right. Um, but Lindsay Anderson said the way he would have liked people to see the movie is, I mean, I know that sounds weird. Like a director's like, you should watch my movie like this. But he honestly thought his movie was more about, uh, this is a quote, the impossibility of happiness and the inability of people to communicate with each other. Yeah. Which I think is definitely almost on the mark because a lot, a lot of the movie again is Frank and Mrs. Hammond not seeing, I mean, she sees him more. But he definitely doesn't know what she wants no. or and, what she and, needs. And you have to wonder whether he really cares specifically what she wants. I think he really only cares insofar as as he gets what he wants. Because it makes him feel like a man. It makes him feel like a man. Like he said, it makes him feel like a big man because he can buy her a fur coat and a fucking uh, load of groceries. And it feels like he's, you know, oh, I'm doing such good. But Yeah, like he can conquer anything he wants on the rugby field, but he can't conquer, you know, Mrs. Hammond. Yeah. And that kind of, that, that bugs him. Yeah. Uh, makes him not feel like, you know, fulfilled or whatever. He's a man who takes what he wants. I forget what the exact line was, but he said something like, if you want something, you go out and you take it. And that's who I am. That's and exactly that's what he says. Exactly who he is. Yeah. yeah. So um, the last little thing here before we do a little bit more of a deep dive into the movie, uh, director Lindsay Anderson was actually uh, in the closet for almost all his life. And he's deeply in love with Richard Harris when he yeah. cast him in the movie. How could you not be? Look at that man. <laughs> there was a book published about him called... It was called... Mainly about Lindsay Anderson. People were not happy when that book came out because they dove a lot into his personal life. And Mm. Lindsay Anderson was known for being very private. Even, you know, obviously he was in the closet. Like, he was somewhat private. Uh, Actor Malcolm McDowell, who we've Ah, talked about on the show before. Our friend, our old friend. Yeah. He said this about Lindsay. He said, I knew that he was in love with Richard Harris, the star of this sporting life. And I'm sure it was the same with me and Albert Finney and the rest. It wasn't a physical thing, but I suppose he always fell in love with his leading men. He would always pick someone who was unattainable because he was heterosexual. Yeah. So that's what he said. Do you want to hear a little bit about uh, a little bit of Lindsay Anderson talking? Sure, I'd like to hear him. It's, uh, there's a little slam in it in the interview clip. It's got not a lot to do with this movie, but he talks about why this movie, uh, what would happen if this movie was released today. And when I say today, I mean 1994 when he was okay. interviewed, which is about a month before he died. Okay, I was going to say, he's no longer alive. No. So this is from 1994, and he says... 25 years ago, Brendan. 25 years. That's crazy. Yeah. And he says uh, what, what the kind of reaction would be like if he tried to release This Sporting Life in 1994. I'm pretty sure that today the film would not be received particularly well, perhaps chiefly because 
as the years have gone on and we've arrived at the present, the most important thing for a British film must surely be economic success, financial success in the United States. That's what gets them media attention in this country. And perhaps a certain spirit of conformism. I mean, if you look at a film at the moment, like, um, what's it, Four Weddings and a Funeral, why is that so tremendously popular? It's funny. Is it? Yeah. Did you laugh? Yeah. Because I've met. Now, is I've that a comment party. on the film or on you? I've been to. I've met people. I've met just about everybody <laughs> apart from Andy. What about you've met me? Mm. You haven't asked me <laughs> anything. What? <laughs> the little slam on uh, yeah. one of our one of our movies <laughs> before. I don't know. I if don't know what he was getting at. I don't know if it's a slam or if he's just like. Well, you thought it was funny. Okay. Was it? Was it? I mean, yeah, it was. I mean, I don't <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then the interviewer was trying to say, well, I've met people like that. He's like, well, have you met me? I'm not sure what he was trying to get. <laughs> I mean, he was kind of, it's like, I have met you, Lindsay Anderson, and you're kind of like the old guy in the film that doesn't know that uh, when the guy says the name, he's like, oh, my brother's dead. That's you, Lindsay Anderson. <laughs> Lindsay Anderson? Lindsay Anderson. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to play that clip. So let's 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 get into this a little more, Jason. Let's yeah. let's kind of deep dive into this movie a bit. First off, I got to say the opening titles of this movie very Monty Python and the Holy Grail, very like like dark and brooding and bong bong, black and white text. And, yeah, and I think also like the thing. Oh, hold on. <laughs> yeah, and I think also like the thing this movie gets across really well right off the bat is the sound design. Yeah, and I know that sounds weird, guys, but. Serious guys and gals, uh, but the sound design is so like when Frank gets hit at the beginning of the movie when he gets punched mm. and his teeth come, it's like a gunshot. It's a good one. It's a good fucking crunch. It's like the sound <laughs> design is is really really good. And yeah. and what and what? How does it start? You hear industrial sounds. Yes, like working class industrial noises in the background. Um, this movie also like for a nineteen sixty three. Yeah, nineteen sixty three. It reminded me a little bit of Darling at the beginning, just with the style of editing. Yeah, like there was a lot of cross cutting. Yeah. Like for the first, for the first like couple minutes, I was like, uh, but then I kind of realized, oh, okay, we're going back and forth in time a little bit because, like you said, he's slipping in and out of consciousness. Because yeah. we go see, we see the Mrs. Hammond scenes very early on. As they've already happened, like yeah. weeks or we maybe even months, months ago. Yeah, exactly. It, he's already he's already established on the team by the time he gets his teeth knocked out. Right. And I actually do want to play um, the first kind of conversation we have with uh, with Frank and Margaret, just because you get the sense, this is how they pretty much establish right off the bat, you get everything out of this, this one little exchange. Mm-hmm. I should also say this is after Frank has basically said, I'm going out for a walk, you should come with me, you should come with me. Yeah. They're not together no. yet. You must be mad to think I'd go out there walking with you. I don't want you poking your nose into my affairs. You won't find me poking my nose into yours. I have some pride left, if you didn't know. Don't you want to be happy? If I'm left alone, I am happy. I don't need you pushing in. I'm not pushing in. I'm just trying to be friendly. Well, I'm not going about all day with a grin over my face just to make you think I'm happy. I don't mean laughing all the time. I mean, you just don't look happy. Question of laughing all the time. You make me sick. All right, I am sick. I'm bloody sick of living here and all. Mr. Machin, that's easily settled. Don't. 
Just stop living here. We'll be better off without you. And she's just totally not interested, and he cannot understand that how could anybody not be interested in hanging out with him? Yeah. It's crazy. Mm, it's crazy. Um, can you, maybe you can answer this for me. Maybe this is like, when he's at the, so he goes to the dentist. Yeah. And he's, he's getting his teeth pulled. Yeah. Why does the dentist tell him to put his hands in his pockets? Uh, because he is probably going to be doing very painful work on him and he doesn't want his hands flailing about. He doesn't want, because Frank's a, a violent rugby player that, that punches people. All he needs is for him to like grab the tooth the wrong way and all of a sudden he fucking swings his fist up and punches him in the face. So I imagine it's part of like kind of like uh, a restraint idea of like if you keep your hands in your pockets and you're not going to hit me. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case, but that's what I would say. I, I, that was my some, assumption. For some reason, I was like, does this dentist have, like, sexual harassment <laughs> uh, claims against him? Keep your hands to yourself, Frankie boy. Now, Frank, not only towards Mrs. Hammond, but I feel like he's very cold towards a number of characters, particularly Dad, Johnson. Yeah. The guy who is the scout, the rugby scout. Um, because there's a scene, like, right after his trial, he, he, uh, he meets Mr. Weaver. Yeah. And he doesn't know it's Mr. Weaver. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, how'd you do, boy? And he's like, oh, I think I did pretty good. You know, whatever. And Mr. Weaver's like, I don't think you'll have any getting trouble signed. I don't think you have any trouble getting signed at all. And he, like, walks out. And he's so mad that Dad didn't tell him who that was. Mm. He squeezes his hand. Yeah. Like, Why'd he just squeeze my hand, Frank? He's, he, yeah, he's, like, he's violent. And it's not just, like, a, like, a, oh, like, a quick squeeze. Because, like, yeah, you, like you said, he's actually reacts to why it. Why you like, gotta be so mean? Why, why you gotta be so cruel? Why I you changed gotta it. be so mean? <laughs> um, and later on in the movie, I feel like, uh, I feel so bad for Dad. Because hmm. he kind of throws him to the wayside. Yeah, I mean, this this guy, go, you know, he's a scout. He puts himself on the line to get Frank a tryout, and then, you know, just kind of gets cast aside. Like, well, he does I, offer him some money at some point, but he, of course, being the, the typical British person, is like, oh, no, 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 no. Then the maid, or not the maid, the neighbor does that later, too, where he tries to give her money, and she's like, oh, no, it couldn't. Yeah, and then he just puts it out anyway. <laughs> and just leaves it there. Well, I'm wondering if the breakdown of his relationship with Dad has something to do with this scene. The old man treats you like a son. I wouldn't say that. I call him Dad because he's old. I don't mean that. What do you mean? The way he treats you. The way he ogles you. He looks at you like a girl. Now, don't come with that. He's interested, that's all. I'd say excited. Well, excited, then. Look, what are you getting on about? He hasn't got much to get excited about at his age. He's done a lot for me. He's never had a job of work in his life. How do you know he's never worked? Because I've got eyes. You just look at his hands. He's got awful hands. They're all soft. What have hands got to do with it? He's got awful hands, I've got awful hands. We're not all women. It's nothing to do with me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because when that scene happened, in my head I thought, in my, I guess my modern tuned head was like, oh, is that going to be an interesting plot element that he's kind of in love with uh, Frank too? But that never really goes anywhere. It doesn't, but there is a later scene where Mr. Weaver uh, hits his leg yeah. When they're in the car yeah, together. Yeah, he touches his leg. He, touches he kind of his grabs leg. his knee in but a I, such a way. And Frank kind of was like, okay. Yeah, Frank has a momentary reaction of like, he's uncomfortable. But yeah. I don't think it's meant to be that when he does, when Mr. Weaver does it. Mm. 
Maybe but it I is. thought back to that because uh, I wasn't sure whether she was talking specifically about dad. Obviously, about she dad, was, yeah. But uh, or whether Weaver too. Like, it's like is there just is I, there a whole gay subplot going on? But no, that was not the case. Well, yeah, no, I think she is talking about dad because she also mentions like later on yeah. when he's outside, basically waiting for Frank to get home. Yeah, I think there is. I think that's there. But I think yeah. in 1963, you could only go so far. With you can only go so far. Yeah. I, however. I will say, there is a movie coming up on this list at some point that was made around this time, and they do a lot more with that. So I bet we'll you get, the budget was way less. Okay, probably. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein produced. <laughs> oh. Well, there's a lot of drunk, drunk, naked pool wrestling in this movie. Did you notice that? That's what I mean. There's a lot of homosexual <laughs> yeah. undertones. And but, that's but it's thing, But it's from that old era where, you know, quote-unquote, no one was gay. I mean, lots of people were gay, but nobody talked about it, so nobody ever thought about it, so you just naked boys hanging out together that was just what you did it was like being in school you got naked you went for a swim you had a grand old time you sucked a few dicks and then you went home that was all you did did you get did you ever did okay throughout this whole movie yeah did you ever feel horny no not really i mean i mean all right to each their own yeah but did you ever feel like a little bit of uh taxi driver may have bored from this yeah there was there's even a scene where he looks in the mirror yeah and he's like shadow boxing. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like, you know, the iconic scene in Taxi Driver. I wonder if Scorsese, because, well, I mean, Martin Scorsese, we talked about Black Narcissus and he, him loving the films of Powell and Pressburger. I don't think it's that far, like, you know, far-fetched a thing for him to also have Well, Scorsese this. was clearly a film nerd, so yeah, if, if, if anybody saw this movie in America in the 60s, it was probably him. He's probably the only one in the theater. And I mean, he's also a guy, It's as far as, far as a character is concerned, he's also a guy who, like a taxi driver, obviously he wants to clean the scum off the streets, or yeah. so he says. And in this movie, um, he fancies himself as some kind of, like, you know, great figure that's going to yeah. right all the wrongs in Mrs. Hammond's life. Yeah. So it's kind of the same with delusions Similar, of yeah, grandeur. D- d- exactly, delusions of grandeur, of, of being more than they are, but without actually, you know, being grand. Right. They want to be grand, but they're not prepared to actually be grand. By the way, I tried to look up the book that he's reading at one point. This book that he's reading called Cry Tough. Because yeah. I wanted to see if that had, you know, there was anything to that. Uh, all I could get is it was a book about gangs and gang mentality. So, oh. I mean, that, I mean that's kind of like a rugby That's appropriate thing, so. for rugby, yeah. yeah. I suppose trying to get into the heads of his opponents. Um, Rachel Roberts. we got to talk about Rachel Roberts. She's great. She's fantastic, fantastic in this movie. And she does some of the... This is a very difficult role. Mm-hmm. Because she has to take a person who is all... A character that's always on edge. She's always bothered by something or you know whatever and um but she has but she does it in like a subtle way there's so many great moments like when frank buys his new car Hmm. and he comes he wants to take her for a drive she will she obviously she's like oh no you'll catch me to thing like that he takes like her her son for a drive and she has a look on her face that's a she looks a little concerned but she also kind of smiles like Hmm. she's happy for Ian to kind of be moving yeah. on. She like a little glimmer of hope in his life. He did. She knows that he's probably going to enjoy that car ride. Yeah, like she's still concerned slash worried slash not sure if this is the right thing to do. But she's also like, well, you know, he's having a good time. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I want to talk about. Do you think Frank's interactions with the kids are genuine? I think so because I because uh, we see the scene later where Frank is after a game and he's hanging out and he has all the kids around him and he's giving them advice and he's signing autographs and yeah, that's the one thing that he really seems to be like genuine about is that he seems to really get along with the kids and enjoys, you know, hanging out with them. I don't, I'm, I'm on the fence about it, honestly, yeah. because I, like, I, I, I feel, I feel like it's real and, and maybe it's because the kids, uh, are just pure in their kind of like, like he can satisfy them in the sense that they see him 
No, not like that, Brenda. And it says that they see him, and he gets the reaction he wants out of the kids because they're right. super happy to see him because he's this rugby player. That's so true. obviously he's nice to them, but he, but like I say, he can't get that same reaction from Mrs. Uh, Hammond or anybody else that he wants it from. Right. Uh, it's. I think just. I think the thing that was that was getting to me was that it was her kids. From it was her kids and like I mean you said yes he's signing autographs yeah but I think also like Weaver and all those guys are around so he can't really be a dick to them yeah. I guess but but I, I don't get that he wants to be I get that he's <clears throat> genuinely enjoying talking to the kids I just got the sense that maybe he was getting her kids to approve of him so that she would open up more that that may be an ulterior motive but i but i do i I didn't think about your point though you made with uh the kids being like very pure and very like giving him the reaction to be the big man he wants to be and they give him the reaction that he wants exactly yeah that's a good point uh i need to mention too also just another example of frank being a shitty person like we talked about how when he was when he was at the the restaurant but earlier in the movie he goes to a cabaret with, uh, I think, Morris or one of his other teammates, and there is a young lady that is singing a song, and he's fucking full-on, like, heckling her. Oh, catcalling and He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, show us your personality, lass. Like, that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. Like, it's like... And, and as a guy, as as you and me both, who have done stand-up comedy before... Uh, those people uh, are our favorite. Those people are the best, yeah. Yeah, they're and great. That's what, we, that's what we hope for. We strive for hecklers. Yeah. Yeah. But um, is this the scene also where he sings? Because I do have that last clip I wanted I to play. I think so. Yeah. They bring him up and then they're like, yeah, it, it was like pre karaoke. It was like there, there was no lyrics. You just had to know the song. So <laughs> I want you guys, listeners out there, all uh, uh, 32 of you, um, I want you to listen to this clip because he gets, Frank gets up on the stage himself, starts singing. He does it in a very sarcastic way. But if you listen to the lyrics, I think this is really how he feels. Yeah. So let's just listen to this real quick. Don't you think? Yeah, that's like it, him it, singing it, to Mrs. Hammond. Basically. I didn't, obviously didn't notice it at the time. Yeah. But in retrospect, after the end of the movie, hearing that now, it's like, yeah, clearly that. Yeah, he's he's clearly singing what his real feelings are. He's, he's yeah, he's singing. Say that you care. Yeah, that's like that's his what he wants. Big thing. Just tell me that you're impressed with me. That you give a shit, and I'll leave you alone. And now I fi- I remembered the word I wanted to use. Yeah. He wants validation. Validation. Absolutely. Valifucking-dation. Valifucking-dation, Brandon. <laughs> he wants validation because what is the thing he does when, like, we played the clip earlier, but when he gets signed, he wants her to guess how much, he says to her, how much do you think I'm worth? Yeah. That is how he questions, that's how he asks her. Yeah. And it's not only her. He, we didn't, I don't, I mean, I don't have the clip for everything, but like, you know, he asks a bunch of people how much they think he got. Yeah. And he doesn't say like, hey, how much do you think I got? He says, how good do you think I am? Like, it's always, always, always asking. It's always tied to some value. Am I good? Yeah. Am I great? How good am I? I'm a thousand pounds good. This Look at girl, my check. That girl wants to fuck him at a party. And he yeah. says, am I a good footballer? Like, it's yeah. all about that. That's all he cares about. <laughs> 
His validation. He needs to be validated. We all need to be validated sometimes, but this guy is really hard about it. But also, he doesn't really seem to get any validation uh, in a lot of ways, or at least the validation that he seems to crave. Right. He's like yeah. a poor. He's like he's like the kid from Kess. He's just grown up, kind of a shitty life, and oh, here he wow. is. Man, I don't want to believe this is the kid from Kess. Yeah, well, grown up. Yeah. Richard Harris is the older version. Oh, <laughs> why? Why is it still the sixties? <laughs> he aged very fast. He also uh, he smoked a lot back then. He just aged real quick. Real quick. He also his buddy Morris uh, is engaged, mm. and they have a scene where they kind of talk about that too. Because uh, he says, "Oh, marriage, I'd never settle down. That's the worst." But you know, you know that if Mrs. Hammond wanted to do that, he'd be down in yeah. a second, oh, absolutely, in a heartbeat. Absolutely. And he doesn't understand. There's like an, even a scene later on where he's talking to Morris, and he says, "Hold my hand. Mm. Am I allowed to like? Can I love?" Like, yeah, he's like, like, I don't really understand. I don't understand the like, hold my hand thing. But like, he, he says like, I won't be doing this forever. Like mm-hmm. I won't be playing rugby forever. So I need something that's a, a common, like a steady thing. He wants stability. Stability. And she's my stability. No. That doesn't sound like someone that's in love. Yeah. That's a fucked up way to look. He, at he's, it. he's desperate for a significant other in like we've seen in many movies over the years and men and women both uh, that he's so desperate for stability that he's willing to take whatever and it's like because that's the question does he actually love Mrs. Hammond it seems unlikely like that he's actually in love with her she represents something she represents a life that he thinks he should have yeah and like that's the thing in this movie. Again, he's he's I wouldn't say he's rich, but he's very he's wealthy. He, he's well to do. He has a nice car. He has a nice <laughs> car. Unlike all of these movies, this character is well to do and it's just his personal life that's such in the shitter mm-hmm. and it's because he doesn't have any fucking nuance. Like he doesn't have any yeah. And like yeah, we talked about the tragedy at the end of the movie. He's basically he is basically as Marker described him, Mrs. Hammond, yeah. a great ape yeah. on a football field. That's what he is. He throws the ball around and punches guys in the face. Well, man, we got we got into that deep. I like that. Yeah. One. That was that was, was that was tight. Yeah, this is this is a movie. It was this is a long movie and and you know it can be pretty rough to watch, but it, it it's led to some good discussion. It's a, it's an interesting piece. Yeah, like I, I it is a difficult watch. It's not an easy watch. It's it's two hours and fourteen minutes, I believe, and you do kind of feel it at times, but. Uh, kind of like, uh, kind of like I think how I said at times, Darling felt a little long to me. Yeah. I, like I, I enjoyed that movie to an extent as well. But yeah, yeah it's it, it does it definitely feels its length at times. But you know, let's talk about how other people, how how it was received by other people. Okay, maybe some more professional assholes. Yeah. Because it does go to the Oscars, my friend. Oh, it is nominated for two uh, two two Academy Awards. Wow. Does not win. Well, it's nominated for two Academy nominated? Awards. Best costumes. No, nominated <laughs> for best actress for Rachel Roberts. Oh, okay, very nice. Other nominees that year uh, that year include Leslie Caron, Karen. I don't know for the L-shaped room. Don't Shirley MacLaine for Irma LaDuce. We just saw her in a trailer. The greatest film of all time. Rumor has it. Rumor has it. Rumor has it. Uh, other nominees were Natalie Wood for Love with the Proper Stranger. But she got thrown off a boat before she could accept the award. Why did I know you were going to say <laughs> something like that? I just, I couldn't stop from talking about her and I dumped her in the river. I don't think Walken did it. Yeah, he did it. He did was the guy that did Robert it. Wagner did Robert it? Wagner watched him do it. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Anyway, the winner was Patricia Neal for HUD. HUD? Yeah. The Housing and Urban Development? Sure. Okay. It's a documentary <laughs> that she won Best Actress for. Nice. <laughs> uh, and then the other nominee nomination was Best Actor for Richard Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, other nominees that year include Albert Finney for Tom Jones, which we will do eventually. Yep. 
Rex Harrison for Cleopatra, which I recently bought for wait, $5. Wait, 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 wait. Rex Harrison got a Best Actor nomination for Cleopatra? He sure did. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Rex Harrison, but really? Playing Caesar? Is this Come a, on. Is this a hot take? This I don't think this is a hot take. Is I Rex mean, Harrison... Uh, do you think Stewie would make a good Caesar? Because that's basically what it is. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't want to delve too much into hot takes, but I mean, fucking... Rami Malek got nominated for one best actor. Anything can happen. He's a solid actor, Brennan. Yeah, he's all right. I don't like him in that movie. I'm going to stand by it. Uh, You're a terrible person, and you will be thrown off a bridge. And then the other... I didn't see the movie, so I don't know. That's what happens in Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, okay. The other nominee was uh, Paul Newman for HUD, again. But the winner that year was Sidney Poitier for Uh, Lilies of the Field. Oh, I don't know that one. I don't know it either. Uh, He did win for... uh, In the Heat of the Night? Wait, no, I don't think he did. Guess who's coming to dinner? No, in the heat of that one best picture. Oh, okay. He didn't win for best actor. Anyway, so that's what happened at the Oscars. At the BAFTAs, however... Yes. Uh, the, the real awards... It lost to Kess. <laughs> no. It's not even released the same year as no. Kess. Kess is what, a year later? Uh, Kess was 1969, so six years okay. after this. So at the BAFTAs, it was nominated for best film, yeah. best British film, mm-hmm. best British actor, yeah. and it wins best British actress for Rachel Roberts. Hey! So that's cool. She deserves it. Well, before we get into our kind of uh, wrap-up, you know, final thoughts, is there anything else you want to say about this, this sporting life? I did have one thing. Uh, oh, uh, he drugily drives at one point and shows up home. And that's... Uh, oh, no, this is what I wanted to say. Though, though he does drugily drive up a home and nobody references it. Is that... And, and this stands out just because it isn't a thing. Everybody smoked back then, but he doesn't smoke in this movie. He chews gum. He's constantly chewing gum. Huh. And I don't know if that makes him more of a dick... Because he has that kind of like jockey, kind of like, yeah, I'm always chewing gum, see, thing going. And he chews it with his mouth open. And he chews it with his mouth open. Yeah, 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 yeah and chawing it. And whereas everybody else smokes cigarettes like you would expect in a movie that era. I wonder if it's like, I mean, I would have to go back and watch it again, which yeah. I will not lie to you folks. I probably won't watch this for a very long time if I do watch <laughs> it again. Because, not because it's bad, just because it's... it's it, it, We saw it. It's we, difficult. Like like Crash, we've seen it. Now we move on. <laughs> I will watch Crash every day. <laughs> you like James Spader getting horny on cars, Crashes? Oh, that one. I was talking about the other one, but I'm just wondering if you think James Spader getting horny off car crashes is fun. I uh, need you to leave the room. Do you know who the fuck you're talking to? Uh, What what was I saying? I don't know. (laughs) I wonder if it's a situation like, I know we just talked about that movie winning an Oscar um, in the heat of the night. Mm. Because in that movie, Rod Steiger does a uh, thing where he's always chewing gum as well. And when he gets more agitated, he chews it a lot quicker and his his mouth is open. And when he's like sort of calmer, he's just like, you know. Doing the casual Yeah, casual chow. Like I wonder if like looking back at the movie, I wonder if he does that. Because mm. that's an that, that that's like kind of a cool actor thing to yeah. do, um, but yeah, no, I didn't even notice that mm. either. Well, okay, so let's talk about this. So, this sporting life is number fifty-two on the BFI. I already said I feel like this is the bleakest movie we have ever done. I would say so far, yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, we might get we we got a lot, plenty to go. Oh yeah, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it does move at a methodical pace. It is difficult to watch at times. We have a very unlikable main character, even though he is very nuanced as a mm. character. Like, there's a lot going on. Oh yeah. But it all it, it, it's a movie, it's a very well-made movie and I, that I will probably never watch again. And and folks, we watched a, a Blu-ray of this and it looks great. They did it, a oh, wonderful yeah. restoration to it. It, it just looks sharp. I think it was a Criterion. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that that alone though may, like the fact that it's it doesn't have a huge rewatchability factor does move it down the list a little bit for mm-hmm. me just because of that. Yeah. But I appreciate the dark tone of the story and its various qualities. Yeah. 
I, I'm just happy to see Richard Harris in his prime just acting the shit out of this movie, just fucking nailing it. Like, you know, you can't argue with the performance. We all hate Frank, <laughs> or dislike yeah. Frank substantially. And... I'd argue English Bob is a more likable character Yeah, than I would Frank. say, yeah. And English Bob's only on screen for like ten minutes. Yeah. Greatest ten minute performance of all time. That's right, it was awesome. <laughs> I think that's going to do for the yeah. movie. That was that was quite the heated discussion. But, I mean, not heated. Heated, we weren't fighting. We weren't fighting. <laughs> that, 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 that'll come when we watch Carry On when I, de- Absolutely. When I decree it the best British film ever made. <laughs> so, Jason, at this point, what is our next step? Our next step is to get our movie for next week. And how will we do that? We do that through the gods of the dice. You hear them in their bag. Like two little testicles inside a huge scrotum. It's me. Yeah. Your scrotum. Your tiny no, scrotum. No, it's my, it's my roll this time. Oh, okay. Okay, Jason. So I am going to roll these dice. Yep. And the number I get on these dice will be the number corresponding to the BFI Top 100 list. Mm-hmm. And we will do that movie next week. Assuming we haven't uh, uh, already watched it. Well, then we're just going to do it again. Then we'll just re-roll. Uh, or do it again. We'll just watch it again. We'll watch it again. Do a whole other episode. Reanalyze it again. We'll Actually, we'll just post a repeat. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. We'll just run the episode again. <laughs> Even though you could just download it. Oh, man. It's going to be rough at the end of this thing. <laughs> man. I don't want... Just send me the link to your latest one. <laughs> I'm tired of looking through all the summer reruns. <laughs> all right, guys. That, that's what happens with TV, right? When yeah. they... when they, they reason they run summer reruns is because they got doofus in the office. It's like, I don't know where the new episodes that's are. Right, that's right. They just re- keep rolling dice, and until the dice come up right, they won't make new episodes. <laughs> all right. You want to give them a little blow for good luck? Here we go. Whew. Wow. Let's hope we get something fun. I don't know what I'm ready for here. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, we've got 57. 57, Brendan. 57 is The Go-Between, 1970, directed by Joseph Luzzi. Or Lozy. The Go-Between. I think that's our next Julie Christie movie. Oh, well, I'm excited about that. I love (laughs) Julie Christie. She's a smoking hottie. I don't believe this is a dark movie. Okay. And I believe Julie Christie is in it, and that's all I really know. I'd like to think that it's a screwball comedy in the Preston Sturgis kind of manner. I don't believe it is, but, oh. you know, who knows? We'll Maybe. See. This isn't Tom Jones. Okay. <laughs> so, the go-between, 57... Man, we're getting a lot of 50s. Yeah. Like, yeah, we've been kind of 53, 52... Are those dice weighted? Uh, For mediocrity? God save the... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that is what we're going to do. The go-between, Joseph Losey, 1970, Julie Christie, I believe. If it's not Julie Christie, I'm going to sound like a total idiot. Well, that's you every day anyway, so what are we going to do about it? Ouch. Yeah. So that's next week. Join us, won't you? Uh, But before we go, we should mention that we are on Twitter. We are. We are at BFI underscore pod, if you want to follow us on Twitter. We're also on the podcatchers Podbean, iTunes... And Stitcher. Uh, you can find us at forscreenandcountry.podbean.com. And, you know, for iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the fuck they're calling it. It's out there. Search us. <clears throat> and Stitcher. Uh, just search for it. And, uh, Jason, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me on Twitter. I am at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. True Scottish style. Find me on there. I tweet occasionally. 
He only does live tweets about uh, baking shows. Baking shows, uh, and I'll occasionally tweet about Star Trek. So if you're not watching Star Trek Discovery and don't want to be spoiled, don't look at my Twitter. That's rare. He's not much of a Star Trek guy. <laughs> no. All right, well, I guess that'll do it. So with that being said, Jason, what? God save the queen. God save the screen. And for Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Suck a dick. I have loved you more each day Walking back to happiness whoop oh yeah Said goodbye to loneliness whoop oh yeah I never knew I'd miss you Now I know what I must do Walking back to happiness I shared with you I'm making up for things I said whoop oh yeah And mistakes too which they let oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have gone away So I'm coming back today I'm walking back to happiness I threw away Hi guys, we interrupt your favorite podcast To interrupt you with an ad for your new favorite podcast Wait, wait, isn't this playing on somebody else's show? Exactly so then how are we... Inter- I thought we were their new favorite podcast. Well, we're going to become their new favorite podcast after they hear this advertisement for our show. What's our show called, Justine? Superiority Complex. Yeah. Where can they find us, Patrick? Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, exactly. You can go to at Soup Complex on Twitter, S-O-U-P Complex, and you can go to Facebook.com slash Soup Complex. But our main page is on Podbean. And you can find us there at www.superioritycomplex.podbean.com. New episodes are out every Thursday. Justine, yes. what do we talk about on the Superiority Complex? Nerdy stuff. Perfect. Don't get all sensual with your voice. Yeah, did you hear that? I heard it. It's a little inappropriate. If you want to hear a little more of that, tune in to the Superiority Complex. One more time, Justine, what do we talk about? Nerdy stuff. Nah, wasn't no. the same. You tried. It's time, let's check our cue, baby Pair it with a couple brews, baby We love good movies We love the bad ones, too So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you Oh, yeah Everything I learned from movies Helps to make life a little bit groovy With a one-life plot, holes, a gratuitous boobies It's time to get busy With your friend Steven Izzy At eilfm.podbean.com